Hey everyone, Paul here. You know, those of you that have been following this podcast for a while are probably well aware of the fact that I spent about 18 months doing a series on the problem of evil, and we brought a conclusion to that series last month. But just because we brought an official conclusion to that particular series doesn't mean that we aren't going to talk about the problem of evil ever again. Certainly won't be the case. In fact, in today's very episode, we're going to dive back into some important, intriguing, and challenging questions about the problem of evil. And to do that today, I am joined by my friend Dan Kent. Dan has been on the program before. He is a pastor at Woodland Hills Church, along with Greg Boyd, who is the senior pastor there. Uh, Like Greg Boyd, Dan is an open theist. He holds to Greg's warfare worldview. And we've talked together about this in person before on several occasions and thought, you know what, it'd be really good to have some fruitful exchange together about some of my differences of opinion now. I am no longer, I used to be once upon a time, a card-carrying open theist. I'm no longer convinced that that's the best way to understand the scriptures, God, or reality. But Dan had provoked me with some good follow-up questions after the conclusion of my Problem of Evil series, and I thought, you know what, let's talk about these together have some fruitful back and forth, uh, have Dan share a bit of why he feels convinced that the open view is the best way to make sense of the problem of evil, understand scriptures, understand reality. And then I can maybe give some pushback. He can give some pushback to me as well. And so, boy, this was just such an enjoyable conversation with Dan. Again, Dan has been on the program before. We had a conversation with him back in the first year of this podcast. He and I sat down to talk a little bit about theology and psychology, especially surrounding the work he had just completed, a book called Confident Humility. So if you want to know more about Dan's personal backstory, we certainly talked about that in that episode. I'm sure there's going to be a variety of opinions as people go through this episode today, and I'd encourage you to voice those in our Deep Talks Patreon forum for this episode. In fact, for every episode, we have a discussion forum available on the Deep Talks Patreon page. It's a great place. It's better. It's a better forum than Facebook or Twitter to try to have some exchange, not just with me, but with other listeners of this program. And I'm sure there's going to be a lot of feedback after today's exchange with Dan. You know, we take the gloves off. It's a no-holds-bar fist fight. I'm just joking. It's a really respectful, nuanced, uh, friendly conversation, but we do push back and forth on each other's ideas and the questions that we have. And you're totally free to disagree with both of us, but I hope you agree with me. No, I'm just, I'm just joking. Honestly, you know what? It's good for us to learn how to have respectful disagreement with each other, to do that with a posture of humility and openness to learn, and yet still feel like at the end we can go and be like, hey, you know what? I appreciate what you've had to say. I don't know if I see it your way. And uh, we'll see in today's conversation if Dan can talk me back in to being an open theist or if I can talk him into a more classical view. We'll see. Today's episode and all of our episodes are made possible by the generous support from listeners just like you. Stay tuned at the end of today's conversation to find out more about the Deep Talks Patreon community, the place where you can not only support this podcast, but to get involved with the forum discussions, receive additional bonus Q&A episodes, participate in monthly Patreon Zoom calls together. There's a whole bunch of things that I think are worth your time if you're interested. 
in the sorts of things that I'm talking about on this podcast. So again, stay tuned at the end. And without further ado, I hope you enjoy today's conversation with Dan Kent. Well, Dan, it's great to chat again, man. I mean, we haven't seen each other face to face in person in real life since before the pandemic. Um, I think we did maybe one Zoom thing together for um, for your podcast with with Greg Boyd, but that's been it. And you've not spent a lot of time in Minnesota, right? That's right. Well, every winter, Barbara and I, we go to Florida for a couple months and uh, we work down there. So we just got back. It's, it's fun too, because we come back right when it's time to tap the maple trees and then we make maple syrup. And that helps uh, helps us deal with the not so fun March weather in Minnesota. Yeah, so. that's fun. My father-in-law has gotten really into that as well. Really? He, oh yeah, cool. He's, he is... I think he's first did it last year and the amount of work, maybe you guys have figured out a better system, the amount of work that he does for such a little amount of usable maple syrup to me <laughs> doesn't seem like a worthwhile trade-off. Have you guys figured out a better system? Well, you know, it, it is, it's a 40 to one ratio. So yeah. you got to get 40 gallons of, of maple syrup to get one gallon of, uh, or maple sap to get one gallon of uh, maple syrup. So it, it there, and there's a lot of work. You have to haul all of that sap and then you got to burn it. And then you got to, but before you do that, you have to have, have a thing to burn on and you have to have wood or fuel or whatever it is you're going to use. And so, and you do all of that work and you end up with like a little jar of, you know, stuff. And, uh, but you know, it's really good. Uh, yeah. the, the, the syrup is, and it's, um, it's, it's a, there's something beautiful about getting something so sweet from your the trees in your yard and uh and the work itself is fun i mean it's fun to stack wood and it's fun to light things on fire and watch (laughs) things boil and when it's you know 35 degrees out and you're standing around this this boiling sap there's like this nice humidity and it's and it's very hearthy and Mm. and you know we have friends come over and we'll all sit around this this cooking thing and uh talk and you know drink beer or whatever yeah it's it's fun work that is and And probably a a spiritual discipline too just to have we live with so much instant gratification to have to work so hard to have that 40 to 1 ratio and be like hey when i go and you know, pick up the the old log cabin syrup, which is is not the same thing. <laughs> no. you know? yeah. But there's there's a lot of hard work that goes into these basic things that we just grab from the grocery store and are like, hey, this is easy. And to really work at something, it's a, it's a bit of maybe you're maybe you're going to start to develop a little Wendell Berry in you, Dan. Yeah, uh, I, I have Wendell Berry in me for sure, yeah. and Robert Frost, and and I you know I grew up, I was born out in the wilderness basically, and I grew up on different types of farms until I was in probably sixth grade. That's when my mom got a, a, a city job and um, worked in a factory and then our whole life changed. But I, I've got a lot of outdoors stuff in my in my blood. Hmm. Yeah, I was just talking to my wife, Carrie, um, a couple days ago, just about now that we are able to start getting back outside again in Minnesota, you realize, especially now with our lives being so much attached to screens and everything is virtual and it's pixels and it's lights just to get back outdoors to touch a tree you know to sit around a fire yeah man it's just such a it's so spiritually renewing i find that to be the case at least 
Absolutely. Yeah. And I think that, um, I think that God speaks to us in nature and, um, I think that you can learn. In fact, I, I did a sermon on this a year ago. Um, I can't remember what it was called. Uh, a walk on the wild side. That's what it was. And it's on my website if anybody w- wants to watch it, but I, I just talked about how we can find God in nature and how, uh, how, you know, the apostle, this is totally an aside by the way, but the apostle Paul talks about how in uh, Romans, how God is obvious in his creation. And when you look at how society has systematically separated us from creation, uh, where we live in concrete and we live in, you know, this, the pseudo nature, we, we have manicured lawns and we have, you know, we have total control over all of the, uh, you know, bugs or whatever that we might yeah, come in contact yeah. with. And, and then even like the stars, we don't even see all the stars because we have so much light pollution and it. it just seems all designed to separate us from creation, which is where the apostle Paul says that God is obvious in, in a, and for a people who, uh, you know, generally don't feel like God exists and don't sense God's presence. Well, no wonder we've, we've, you know, encapsulated ourselves in this concrete fake light, orb hmm. and we're we're pounding on the walls to get out but we're trapped here and and nature if you can find it i think that there are still opportunities to find god there yeah i agree with you i've i've often wondered too you know this is total hypothesis i'm just throwing it out there i'm not saying i i would preach this per se but as a hypothesis i've often wondered why it is and there's multiple reasons why typically urban centers tend to be and cities tend to be less religious than rural areas and i know there's a variety of factors but for me i've often wondered whether or not that detachment from the natural world is a significant factor to people who've lived in these concrete jungles all their life not experiencing the beauty of god's world and uh, I've wondered if that's a factor as well. I mean, it's just a hypothesis. Well, I think it's a good hypothesis. If, if you've ever, like, I went on a cruise. Uh, I was, it was free. I would never really pay to go on a cruise, <laughs> uh, you know, but it was free. And so I went and we were out on the ocean and there was like no light pollution. And the amount of stars you see, it's just, it's baffling. It's just dust and it's all, you know, glowing dust. And like, and I don't, you don't see that. And when you live in the city, you see maybe, of what you see when you're in a place without light pollution. And so you have to ask, what does the chronic lack of contact with that type of awe do to your spirit? Mm. It's just progressively not seeing all that there is to see that's so beautiful and you only see the ugliness. And uh, that has to have a pretty profound impact on on your spirit. Oh man, I totally agree. Well, guys, Dan Dan's been on before. I mentioned this at the top of the podcast. Dan Dan was on year one, I think, of of Deep Talks, talking about his book Confident Humility. It's a great book. I found it to be such a, a balanced approach. Um, I, I think it does a good job of incorporating sound biblical theology with with science as well. Um, and I thought I thought that was such an enjoyable conversation. But Dan's also on staff, a pastor. At Woodland Hills Church, not far from where I'm seated, uh, he's in in Saint Paul, and uh, one of one of his tag team partners over there is Greg Boyd. We've had Greg Boyd on recently to talk about problem of evil stuff with Thomas J. Ord. Um, you know, Dan. Even we were talking beforehand. I know you guys haven't been gathering yet in person, but I've seen some really interesting stuff that Woodland Hills is still doing as a church community, even though you're not necessarily having worship services together. I thought it might be helpful 
for people to hear, well, what does a church do when maybe you're still in the point where we're not worshiping in person yet? Does does the church just shutter up and, you know, but what's going on at Woodland Hills? I've seen some really cool stuff. Yeah. You know, like a lot of people, we, we scrambled to get as much of our services online as possible. Uh, we were fortunate because we already had a really robust podcasting community. Uh, and we, I would say what way, well more than half of our, our, um, participants are, you know, don't come to the actual building. And so we've got a pretty good uh, online presence anyway. And so we just, we tweak that to, to make our services live on YouTube, like a lot of people have done. Um, but like so many other things too. And really, I, I tell you, I feel like I'm closer to a lot of the people who participate in our church than I was even before the pandemic, because there are so many of these contact points, like what we're doing right now. And we're, we also tried to help people in the community that uh, might be impacted by by the, the quarantines and maybe even uh, COVID itself. And so the ministry that I kind of work extensively on is called the refuge and we would meet on Thursdays and we have a little space in the building for that. And it's a place for people, you know, if you're in a self-help group, a AA or a narcotics anonymous or a sexual addiction or whatever, um, or if you're in like a spiritual growth group or whatever, you can come on Thursday and we all share a meal together and we play a little music and then we give a talk and then people go to their groups and, uh, and it's a really great ministry, but that had to shut down uh, with the the quarantine. And so we had that space there, and we're like, well, let's let's partner with some of these food shelves locally and and uh, help give food to families. And you know, the first week that we did it, I think we had like twenty six families that that came. And uh, the last time that I was there, uh, we had I think two hundred and forty families that that came through wow. and got got food. So, uh, in total, I mean, it's thousands of meals that we, we gave out over the last year and, and the resources and the kind of work to turn that space into a food shelf and what was pretty significant, but, uh, I'm really, I'm really proud. And I played a very small role in any of that. I mean, I basically was a grunt and moved boxes and put boxes (laughs) in people's cars and stuff like that. Uh, really like Paula, uh, Paula, uh, Bowlby and, Janice Rowling and some of those people really did some amazing work to, to make that happen. We also have a, a tiny home community uh, on our property, which is what? super cool. I we didn't have know like, that. That's yeah, awesome. It's so cool. Dude, it's so cool. It's like, it's all these tiny homes. There's probably like eight or eight of them, I think. And they're in a circle. And then there's like a fire pit in the middle. And uh, and it really is like this community of, of, of tiny homes. And, and we help people who don't have a place to live kind of get get uh, their feet under them and um, hopefully transition into something more permanent than that. But it's a really wonderful ministry. And uh, we're just starting off. And I think other churches are starting to, to do this as well. And so, yeah, we, we have a lot of stuff That's like that awesome. that we've been doing. Yeah, Man, it's so encouraging to hear. And I, I, I didn't know about the tiny home things. I knew about some ways you had transformed your building space to be a place to feed those who are hungry. And I know of so many other churches that are doing this, but I wanted to highlight that because I think a lot of people, um, you know, maybe especially in smaller church contexts where you don't have the facilities to necessarily do something like that. Or people that are on the outside of church community right now, and they're looking and they're going, well, "What are churches doing if they're not <laughs> if they're not doing yeah. what we picture churches doing, which is just to gather and sing and to have communion or to hear preaching?" So I thought that was really, really, really cool when I when I saw that, and I thought that was worth highlighting. 
Well, yeah. certainly the pandemic is um, brought to many people's attentions significant questions about the problem of evil, Dan. And especially about like natural, what, you know, philosophers and theologians might call natural evil. And I've spent, you know this, I've spent, well, boy, the past uh, 18 months on and off with this problem of evil series. We've had some discussion in person about some of, you know, my questions, even about open theism. I was once a card-carrying open theist. And over the last few years, my, my perspective has shifted. We've had some conversation uh-huh. about it, right? Um, Greg was on maybe just a month ago, and, um, you know, that was a really good conversation with him and Thomas J. Ord. And then I know after I finished the series, I'd posted some thoughts online, and you gave me some really valuable pushback. I mean, and I mean that in the, the best way possible. Uh, it, it wasn't, um, it, it was the kind of pushback that you should have among friends, which yeah. is, hey, well, I see that you're seeing it this way. Can I throw something out to challenge how you're seeing oh. it respectfully? And I really appreciate that. You know what, Paul? I don't remember that. <laughs> I have no memory of that. Uh, you know, you get so many conversations, yeah, it's yeah. hard to keep track, but that's yeah. cool. Yeah. yeah, but I think that's the thing that made me go, oh, you know what? We've we've had some some back and forth together just in person over a cup of coffee or tea um, about about some of this stuff. And I thought, you know what, let's get Dan back on to talk through this. I know even back when I did something with you and Greg and brought up the Laplace's demon thought experiment afterwards, you were like, oh, I wanted to chime in, but we just didn't oh, have cool. enough time. Yeah. So I thought today would be a great opportunity because another thing that's come up is as I've wrapped up this Problem of Evil series, given my conclusion, which again, it could change in 10, 15 years. Uh, there, there's been people in my Patreon community for the podcast that have, um, that are lean towards the open view and have been trying to talk me back into it again. And I thought, well, you know what? They've voiced some really good questions. Let's talk through this with Dan, have some public discourse about this. And um, this isn't like a no holds barred debate or anything. This is really just intended to be, let's, let's have a dialogue about this. So I thought I'd start, Dan, with maybe like if you could share a little bit about what first attracted you. If people want to know your whole backstory, they can go back to their first conversation. But what attracted you to open theism or the open view of the future as a way of understanding the scriptures, as a way of understanding reality? Yeah. Uh, first of all, you know, this has to just be a conversation because if Greg Boyd and Thomas J. Ord weren't able to convince you <laughs> about an open future. Like, what am I going to do? You know, but uh, let me let me just share with you kind of like how or why I even uh, pursued this. And uh, I, I have a picture here that I'm going to share. This is uh, me and my friend Jessica when I was uh, young and full of vitality. Look at that. Uh, look at that boyhood face, that boyish good looks right there. Look, yeah, look how happy I am. And, and Jessica and I, we were, this is, I worked at Planet Hollywood in the Mall of America back when that was there. And after one of my shifts, we went and uh, we just had, you know, drinks together, just soda. I mean, we were both good Christians. Um, <laughs> and this was the last time that um, I hung out with Jessica outside of the hospital. Uh, she had uh, a cancer and she, originally she had it in her knee and then it moved to her lung. And when it moved to her lung, she was in the, the cancer unit for quite a while. And she had a, a pleurovac, which is like a little vacuum that mm. sucks fluid out of your lung. And they, you know, continued to remove these tumors from her lung. And, um, and I thought for sure that, you know, 
I couldn't wait for her to get out and I would, I really wanted to date her and, you know, but you can't really date somebody when they, when they're going through something like this. And yeah. I was afraid and all of that. And, and I'm like, well, okay, well, we're, once she gets out, well then, you know, we're going to date. And we just, we, we clicked so well, we had such a great rapport together. And, um, and then, uh, you know, I, we had these prayer meetings. There was like, she had so many friends. So we had these prayer meetings around these big bonfires of like 150, 200 people that they would just go out there to pray that Jessica would be healed. And I, I mean, my confidence that Jessica was going to be healed was so strong. I just, I didn't even think of any alternative. Mm-hmm. Um, and then the cancer moved to her brain. And, um, and it was uh, a pretty short time after that, that, that she she died and when i got the call that she died i was so shocked because of how confident i was that she would pull through this and it would be no big deal um so that that's what originally put me on the path toward uh you know figuring out the problem of evil and uh and i had been already in love with c.s lewis and i was already pursuing theology and and it was the weirdest thing because uh, the first time I went out with Jessica on a date, we went and saw Shadowlands, which is about C.S. Lewis and him dating Joy Gresham, who then died of cancer and totally made him rethink his views on the problem of evil. And here I was, a young theologian in love with C.S. Lewis, going to this movie with a, a the friend who I loved, who had cancer, who died shortly after, who then made me rethink of oh, my wow, view damn. of the problem of evil. Uh and so that's sort of what got me on on the path. And ultimately, I think what it came to that the reason why I went from C.S. Lewis's explanation that God is outside of time and he can see the past, present, and future all at the same time, and, and he can see what we will do in the future, uh, but, but, but still we make those choices on our own. Um, I moved from that to open theism because I didn't think that that explanation got God off the hook. Um, because... The, the trouble I had was that, you know, first of all, I mean, just take natural evil aside. Uh, even if you take free will, like free choices, if you take the, the choices of Hitler, God is still the one who knew that Hitler was going to happen before he made Adam and Eve. And yet he still chose to make Adam and Eve and he still chose to push the domino down that was going to lead to uh, Hitler. And so for me, that that view didn't work. And the only view that really made sense of of this idea that God is holy, and, and by holy I mean perfectly good, um, uh, goodness that's so pure that it's totally other than anything that we have. Um, the only way to make sense of a God like that with a world that is so blatantly unholy in many ways is is to say that God uh, has no responsibility over the evil. He's not the one who caused the evil. There has to be some openness. There has to be some possibility for something other than God to bring about that evil. That evil has to be contingent on creation, not on necessarily what God decides to do. And um, and so that's kind of, that. and really the point there is that in terms of free will, I don't really care about my own free will that much. Hmm. What, what matters most to me is, this idea that God is holy, 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 as the angels sing in Revelations. Is that true? Is God really holy? Because where does all this unholiness come from then? And uh, Calvinism and Arminianism, I don't see how uh, it can't just come from God. 
Hmm. Um, and open theism is the only perspective that says it comes from something other than God. And for me, that's what uh, drew me to open theism is this idea that no, God can be perfectly holy, even in the face of the, all the unholiness that we see and experience. And the fact that there is a, a God who's perfectly good gives me hope and it gives um, a depth of meaning to my life um, that I don't think I can find without that. Hmm. So that's that's a quick, yeah, quick synopsis. Of well, it. I appreciate that you started with that story, Dan, and that's that's heartbreaking. And I'm I, I think I think about the, my own experiences with inexplic- inexplicable suffering, what appears to my vantage point to be unjust suffering and loss. Those same experiences of praying for somebody, going like, "Hey, you know what." The, 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 this is still my rubric, Dan, and it's been, maybe it's a holdover from my word of faith days, but I don't think it is. <laughs> you know, as I, I picture a situation like that, Dan, and, um, and, I, and I picture Jesus of Nazareth walking in that hospital room, and I go, what would happen if Jesus of Nazareth walked in that hospital room? Yeah. And I have, no, I have no evidence from the Gospels to believe that anything different than that person's healing happens. Right. I mean, there, there, I have no instances of Jesus in the gospels going, Hey buddy, I'd love to do something for you, but I can't. Yeah. Right. And so I, I do feel that sense of like, all right, that's what, that's the direction I have to pray. And it's really baffling, disappointing and heartbreaking when you pray in that direction and it doesn't happen. And then we are put in the position of going, okay, I have to still make sense of my experiences so that I know how to navigate my life moving forward, right? And I appreciate you sharing that because that's the thing I've tried to frame this whole series in is not just so that we could have a philosophical abstract (laughs) debate, but it's to actually figure out how are we going to navigate our lives? We have to live in the world a particular way. We have to pray a particular way. We have to, and the way that we see God in all this is central to the way we're going to live our lives. And so this is such, this is such an important question, not yeah. just for the purposes of, you know, writing some academic paper or something. Yeah. No, but and that's serves. a good point. Cause man, I would rather talk about baseball to be honest, Yeah, but this is just too important. It and, is. Uh, it is. So I'm curious, maybe in more of the particular details than Dan. So you come out of this situation, profound questions, you maybe start with a more C.S. Lewis, a classical perspective, you know, yeah. in the more Thomist-like tradition, which is like, and the place where, I, frankly, I've landed after being an open theist for years, I've kind of gone to more C.S. Lewis's perspective. But I'm curious to you, as you were exploring the options, like, what did your journey practically look like? Did you start with a book? Were you, was it a conversation with somebody? Uh, how did you actually go about coming to the point of even discovering that open theism was an option? Because it's not been historically like one of the the main options throughout church history. That doesn't mean yeah. that it should be discounted, but it is it isn't something that you you just bump into at your average general Baptist yeah. church or something like that. So what did right. that journey actually practically look like? Mm. You know, the, the year that Jessica died, I was, it was I, I finished my two, my double major in three years at Bethel and uh, she died exactly at the halfway point. And I think for the next year, 
I, I have very foggy memories because I was so grief stricken, but I know that I just buried myself in, in reading and, um, and being a good student and just learning as much as I could. Um, and, you know, right away, you know, part of it is when, when you're, when you're really in grief, there are no explanations that are, it's hard to find comfort. Um, and, and C.S. Lewis, you know, I, I liked the C.S. Lewis view before Jessica died. (laughs) Mm. When Jessica died, I, that's where I just like, I said, this isn't enough because God still did this. He knew that this was going to happen and yet he created Adam and Eve anyway. And so to me, it's like, no, God, God brought this about knowing that this was going to happen. And, and the only kind of way that I could say this is that God would, you know, is God just saying, I know this sucks, but you'll thank me later. Uh, or is God saying, no, I did not want this to happen. And this is an injustice and I'm, I'm grief stricken also. Um, I wish this didn't happen. Now let's make the best of it. Um, under the C.S. Lewis view where God is outside of time and he sees that it's going to happen, but he allows it because of some greater good. It just seems like God wants this to happen because he wants, this is part of some greater good. And I had a hard time with God's perfect holiness with that explanation personally. And, uh, and then I, I read this verse <laughs> and, and I probably made way too much of this than the verse says, uh, but this is in Matthew eight. And um, Matthew, the the beginning of Matthew 8, when Jesus had come down from the mountain, great crowds followed him. And there was a leper who came to him and knelt before him saying, Lord, if you choose, you can make me clean. He stretched out his hand and touched him saying, I do choose, be made clean. And uh, I just like broke down crying reading this. The, this is the NRSV version where mm-hmm. they use the word choose. Uh, and just this idea that, no, if if it's God's choice, his choice is to heal. His choice is to make us clean. His choice is to remove the cancer. And so there must be something else at play because God's choice is always to heal. It's not to inflict leprosy for some greater good. His choice is always to heal. Like you said, your intuition is that if Jesus was in that room with Jessica, uh, he would have healed her uh, because that's what the Bible says Jesus does. And so that's where I'm like, okay, if, if God is the one who's going to choose to heal, then why isn't, why is there cancer? Why is he not healing Jessica's and other little kids who are stricken with cancer? And um and so then I, I came upon the book, uh, The Openness of God, which is written by, you know, William Hasker and a bunch of other writers. Um, and that that sort of introduced me to this other perspective. Now, at the time, I was um, in Paul Eddy's theology class, hmm. and I was becoming Paul Eddy's teaching assistant, basically. Had no idea about Greg Boyd. He's like has his office right next to Paul Eddy. I had no idea who Greg Boyd was. <laughs> and here's this great open theist thinker right next to, to Paul Eddy. And I had a couple Bible verse problems with, with open theism. So I, I said to Paul, I said, you know, I'm, I'm, a, I'm considering open theism and, but I'm having a hard time with these verses. And, and Paul's like, well, have you talked to Greg Boyd? <laughs> Duh. But I didn't know who he was, you know? And so I went into uh, Greg's office with a couple Bible questions and, and, I think it had to do with um, the plurality of you, 
uh, when the Apostle Paul's saying that you will do this and you will do that, and and the you there is the church, not an individual, and that so I think that's that that was the problem I, I brought to him, and he helped clear that up, and and I think sometime later that afternoon, I'm like, yeah, this is I think this is the best solution to the problem. Um, I guess that's kind of how it went. Yeah. Uh, and you, I don't know if you remember, but the, Greg was under a lot of heat oh, yeah. at Bethel because Definitely. of open theism. Definitely. And which was really weird to me because it's like, it basically rescued my faith. It mm. really kept me in, in Christianity and kept me devoted to Christ. It's like, here I am, my, my, my friend Jessica just died and I feel like there is no God and none of these theologies make sense. And then all of a sudden open theism comes along and I'm a theology student and I'm trying to be a good student and I'm trying to be a good Christian man. And I'm going to the Christian university and I'm seeking God. <laughs> and I found this solution that makes sense. And, and not only does it make sense, but it, it portrays God in this beautiful way that, that, I understand why the angels are singing to this God and I understand why they're saying, holy, holy, holy. And I understand the the relief that they have when they sing, holy, 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 because they know that there's so much in creation that is unholy, but here's this thing that's perfectly holy. And, and it's just filling my heart with so much hope and joy. And then here come these other pastors who are saying that this is heresy and, and you can't think this. And, and it was just, it was a really, it was a really, a strange time to have something that filled me with so much hope while also being kind of um, attacked so uh, aggressively by these other great um, uh, theological thinkers. Uh, but yeah, that's, that's kind of how it went. It was a weird time for me to stumble oh, man. upon open theism. Yeah. You were right in the thick of it then. Yeah. That was, uh, that's pretty legendary, a legendary era at Bethel Seminary and in the Twin Cities as well. I think the the way that that was handled was really disappointing, um, and the way that people engaged around that subject was was really there were some disappointing features. I think people can have arguments and have disagreements about the scriptures, but I think one thing that I you know even though I'm not there anymore, and I certainly have some things that I do want to get into some pushback and have some exchange at, at some point here, but I do think one thing I just wish everybody would honestly confess is when they. Is, th- is that the Bible isn't written as like a metaphysical treatise, right, you know? Right. Um, and so I think we need to be honest that that wasn't the primary goal of these ancient, especially, you know, you take your Old Testament uh, Jewish authors and they're addressing existential concerns about their people being constantly under the threat of invasion and what does it look like we are just one little tiny people among these empires around us and what does God's faithfulness to us look like and what's our responsibility to respond to this God in a particular way and I you know the the metaphysics the the Greek way of thinking just isn't on now if you move into the New Testament we obviously the the Jewish people at that point have had more interaction with that Greco-Roman world and Hellenism and you see you see more of that, but still, I don't think people, the, the authors of Scripture, uh, first of all, they wouldn't have uniformity on it because they're all writing in different times, you know? They're, they're writing in different periods, and they're writing in their cultural context, and God works within our cultural context to communicate. So this idea that, like, well, we could take, for example, like, Aristotelian metaphysics and just stamp that right cleanly onto the biblical <laughs> narrative— I, I think the best that we can do is to take the revelation that we have in Scripture and then go, 
all right, what sort of metaphysics maybe works best with this? And yeah. I think I think we're all at that point, what we're doing, and I'm going to sound a bit Kantian on this because I do think there's a, a way in which maybe some of this stuff is is beyond saying definitively, like, well, we know for certain the metaphysics works like this. Right. And it's like, well, no, but I am trying to figure out, like, what's the best container for the revelation of Scripture? And I see someone like, and I just want to affirm this, even I, you know, even as I talk to Greg and and Tom, and I have more disagreements with Tom than I do yeah. with Greg on where he's landed. But Me I too. see, <laughs> yeah, I see in them, and I see what you're doing as like you're honestly trying to figure out like what's the best philosophical, metaphysical, ontological container that can make the most sense of the biblical revelation. And at that point, I would hope that we could have exchanges like we're doing now, which are hopefully people perceive as filled with humility towards one another going, okay, well, this is, this is the way I think it best fits, but I acknowledge it's hard. Right. And I'm just so disappointed. It's hard because there's so many, there's so many personal elements to it too. Like the, the, the joy and the hope that open theism gave me that comes into play when yeah. I when I consider somebody writing from a reformed perspective, and um, and so it, it is a there is a component of I have to I have to somehow engage that in love, and I have to um, even though I'm going to be heavily biased. I mean that that's going to create a huge bias when I read reformed thinkers' views on the problem of evil, um, and I just have to be aware of that and and remember to uh, to love and to, um, to to just remember what Jesus said when he saw the crowds. We are all harassed and helpless, like like sheep without a shepherd, and and we're all doing our best, like you said, to to create this box to make the the best sense. And yeah, and I don't think we just don't try to make a box for it or right. to try to find the best container for. What the revelation is is trying to tell us about the way God's character and nature is and the reality and the creation that he's made. But maybe just the thing that I, I look back on that whole Bethel and the Twin Cities kerfuffle <laughs> there. <laughs> I look back and I go, man, I just, I, w- I think there's a way that exchange could have gone differently. But I understand people are really passionate about this stuff. They have, everyone's got their own issues where they're like, this is what the gospel is about. I understand that. So for you then, Dan, like you're saying you found like the open view to be a better container for the biblical revelation. Yeah. Um, I'm curious, what would be the point of connection between the open view and another, uh, expression of the open view that we could call the warfare view. You know, we talked with Greg a bit in that, um, that Q and a episode about his war warfare view. Um, what's the connection and how does that help you maybe feel like it gives you an ability to defend the goodness of God in face of all the evil and suffering in the world? So maybe just even explain like what the warfare view is and is it like is it a package deal? If you have an open view of the future, an open theist, you know, does it logically necessitate that you would hold to this this warfare view that Greg has espoused and like Satan and the problem of evil and uh, a couple yeah. other places? Yeah, I think uh, that's a, a great question, and I will do my best to uh, handle uh, spiritual warfare, even though that is Greg's Greg's topic, and uh, I he's the the best thinker on that topic that I've. Uh, Walter Wink is probably in a similar category, but uh, between those two, I think they're 
they've done the most thinking and research on that, that of anybody that I know. Um, but I think what I would say is that you could, you could have a view of God an, an open view, the uh, view of God, uh, without spiritual warfare. If there was no such thing as cancer, um, tsunamis and all of these other natural evils, evils that it, it's really hard to say that this was the result of some personal agent's choice. Yeah. Some human um, agent, some human agent. Yeah. Um, in, in particular, cancer, uh, tsunamis, you could, you could do like a stable state environment argument that you could kind of wriggle away from, from uh, spiritual warfare. But uh, at some point, I think you get to these evils that aren't really related to, um, that aren't really related to human free choices or stable state environments. And they're just, they're, they're just evil. And at that point, I think the, the best solution is to say that maybe there is another force that um, is not good at work here. And it just so happens that the, the New Testament especially is just full of this narrative about this other force. And, uh, and so it, it, that, it's just uncanny that, that they would have this explanation built into uh, the New Testament. And so that's kind of where spiritual warfare comes in especially. But the other thing is, um, you know, the, to say that I believe that God is wholly good um, and good and holy, but that creation is very unholy. Uh, and when I say, okay, where does that unholiness come from? I just think that there's way more unholiness in the world than can, can be uh, attributed to human agents. And you talk about the fall. Okay. That's one thing, but it just seems like there's a lot more there than just what Adam and Eve did. Um, and so how do you explain all of that? And to me, the spiritual warfare explanation is the best that there is this other agent. Um, there, there is this other agenda, uh, at work in, in creation. So I, I don't like believing in spiritual warfare. I really don't. <laughs> it's not I don't quite like, in vogue, is it? <laughs> no, it's not. And <laughs> it's kind of crazy. embarrassing. Yeah, yeah. yeah, totally. And I don't like saying that I believe in Satan. Um, I, I don't like that. And and I also believe that Satan is a personal being. And boy, that's like really out there. Yeah, that's really people falling out like, of fashion in the West. Yeah, totally, totally. But I mean, if you think about it, if you really have, um, if you really have an antagonist to God, well, that antagonist also has to be intelligent like God is. Otherwise, it's not much of an antagonist. And it also has to be personal because God is personal. Otherwise, it wouldn't be that much of an antagonist. And so there has to be those, those elements. And so uh, as much as I don't like believing in um, spiritual warfare and Satan, um, I think it does make the most sense of the biblical text. It makes the most sense of my experience in the world. And it also makes the most sense out of um, this idea that God is holy and creation is unholy. And, um, and that this idea that, and this is an important part of, of my theodicy is that reality is not exactly the way God wants it to be. It's the way somebody else wants it to be. It's, 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 it's the way something other than God wants it to be. And I think that the spiritual warfare narrative helps uh, explain that in um, an effective way. Yeah. Would you even see that extending? Like I know Greg does. He sees that the amount of, we could say, spiritual interference in the goodness of God's creation, even going to the level of... Um, you know, saying maybe demonic principalities and powers have played a really significant role in things like evolution and yeah. the cataclysmic events. I mean, I just think back, 
not personally think back, obviously, but <laughs> go back 65 million years ago. And there were... It you was were dry. so young then. I was so young. <laughs> so young then. Uh, and, and uh, you know, the world's filled with dinosaurs. And this cataclysm, cataclysm strikes the earth, and now they're gone. They're not around. Um, do you feel like even something like that could be... I'm not asking you to say definitively, yeah. but is that something that you'd be more apt to look at and go, well, that sounds like the work of Satan and some sort of malevolent spiritual force. Yeah. I, I, I have a hard time just like embracing Satan, like on a Saturday afternoon, this <laughs> idea that there's this evil nemesis to God. I mean, trying to account for things that happened 65 million years ago, I'm a lot more apprehensive about. Yeah. I know that, I think Greg also talks about uh, satanic influence and evolution yeah. and, uh, and, you know, maybe I just, I, I don't even think we know enough about evolution to really even start to speculate about, about that, but I could definitely see it. And, um, but I, I'm not really passionate about that idea. Okay. I th I think that, um, you know, what's fascinating about the creation story is that you have this, these six relationships in the creation story, uh, before and after, uh, Adam and Eve, you know, violated, their covenant with God. Uh, you have their relationship with themselves where they walked around naked and felt no shame. You have their relationship with each other where they felt like they were unified. This is bone of my bone, flesh, of my flesh. You've got this relationship with, with uh, nature uh, where basically they have this abundance and they can eat from any tree except for this one. And God, you know, God basically gives them anything that they want. So they have this inherent abundance. God is walking around with them to the extent that, you know, the Genesis says they could hear God rustling through the, the trees uh, and they have access to the tree of eternal life. And so they, they could live, you know, forever. And they had, and then all of a sudden the fall happens and all six of these relationships change. And I think part of that is because you, in order for there to be a choice, uh, in order for there to be this agape love relationship with God, there has to be an alternative to God. And um, part of the choice of God is to live in abundance, to live in peace with oneself, to live in peace with each other. That's the way it was. And so all of those relationships are part of the package deal for loving God and being in, in covenant with God. And so when they violate that, each of those relationships gets inverted. And part of what it means to have a relationship with nature that gets inverted, I think, is that now instead of eating things that are not violent and that sustain you and that are free, that you don't have to kill, well, now suddenly it, everything involves killing. Everything involves blood in, in red and tooth and claw as, uh, was it Wordsworth? I think Tennyson. Tennyson. That's what it yeah. was. Yeah. And, uh, and so, uh, you know, was that Satan who adjusted that or was that part of the, um, the structure of a creation that was built for covenant relationship? If, if there's a genuine covenant relationship here, there has to be an alternative. In order to have a context in which we can have this covenant relationship, there also has to be a potential uh, alternate context in which you can choose something other than God. And, and so maybe evolution and all of the evil that we see in nature and the, the suffering that we see in nature was just part of this alternative uh, creation um, where, um, and, and, and maybe maybe part of the agreement because you have to ask the question why did why did the serpent care why did the serpent care what adam and eve did and that's where personally i think that um 
I think that there was a, a wager going on here that will Adam and Eve stay faithful? And, um, and I, I think Satan said, no, they won't. If, they, if given an alternative, they will not remain faithful. And so I think the wager was set up was, was okay, if you want to see if this plays out, I will let you create this alternative place. And if they choose to uh, not be faithful, then I will hand them over to your alternative reality. It could be something like that. I don't know. Hmm. Um, but in terms of how much Satan plays into the specifics, I mean, this is all obviously heavily totally. speculative. Totally. But, uh, so, yeah, that, that's what I would say is that, I mean, there's so many explanations. There's so many possibilities there that it's hard to uh, to, to be confident about any, you know, explanation on some of those those elements other than I think that my interpretive kind of principle is this idea that I want to make sure that God is, as the angels say, holy, holy, holy. And are there viable explanations that, that allow for that? And, um, and I think that there are, and I think that, uh, many of them require, uh, Satan, uh, and this alternative to God. Yeah. Okay. So, is one of the practical implications of that in your life, Dan, and you can pass on this if you don't want to divulge your, your reasons for it, but I, I, I think you're either a vegetarian or a vegan. Is that correct? I am uh, a terrible, terrible vegan. I mean, I'm so bad, man. I just, I, I, mean, I grew up on a farm, like I said, you know, yeah. and I, I, we, we had, we had bacon and eggs for breakfast. We yeah. had bacon and beef for lunch. We had okay. but roast that gets beef at the question. for dinner. Yeah, that gets at the question that I have then, Dan, is, you know, depending on how you interpret the initial state of goodness and the right ordering mm -hmm. of creation. We were talking about this last night in our, uh, we've got a monthly like Patreon Zoom meeting where we get all the supporters on Patreon together that um, are in our Theology 201 group and we have some discussion about this stuff. And that was one of the things we were talking about was, all right, if we see there being some point in uh, creation in which there was like no decay, no death, no predation, no life cycle at all. What sorts of implications does that have if we're like trying to be people of renewal, being people of the kingdom of God that we, we believe we're participating in this renewal and redemption of all things? So I've curious, I mean, we never talked about this before, but I'm curious mm -hmm. as to whether or not if you feel like, yeah, part of that original state was that, you know, the specific instance we were talking about in our meeting last night was, well, was there ever a time in which lions didn't eat lambs, yeah. in which um, there were no carnivores, uh, you know, in which even, I don't know, people did, were there no even herbivores? Were there a time in which, I don't know, did we not have any need for the breaking down of something else, for the decay of something else, for the death of something else to sustain yeah. life? To me, I'll be honest, I have a really hard time with thinking that that was part of the original state of goodness, um, that it included having to have no decay whatsoever. I just go, I, I don't even know if we're talking about a world that we can even conceive of. Um, the very, the most orderly moment in all of the universe's history was that singular moment as of right now, according to our, our best scientific understanding, was which all of matter and energy was that single point right before the Big Bang. And then from yeah. that moment, entropy, entropy was already at work. We became, in some sense, more disordered as a system. But I have a hard time thinking that that could be anything else but 
the good intentions of God. I can't conceive of a time in which there wasn't, I mean, we're all, all we're doing is recycling through matter and energy, the same amount of matter and energy that was at at work in the universe at that singular moment is the same amount of matter and energy we have now. It's just mm-hmm. that we recycle it, right? I eat food, I break it down. Some of it gets disposed, some of it gets used in my body. It seems like this constant cycle. So do mm-hmm. you feel like there was maybe a time, maybe, are you saying like, there could have been a time in which there was no predation at all, whether it's herbivores or what, or is the line for you like, vi- particularly like violent carnivorous actions? And then is that something that's kind of informed some of your own personal decisions that you feel like it's an ethical choice to be a vegan? Yeah, I think first of all, I do not, um, I, I do not boast about my veganism because I'm not good at it. So, uh, and I also, you know, I love meat. <laughs> I just do, and uh, so I, I'm trying my best though. But yeah, I, I think it is motivated by that okay. uh, because you know. Uh, I think a couple of things. You said a lot of stuff there. I don't even know where to start. But you know, the prophets talk about that the lion will lay down with the lamb, as if as if this is this is something that God wants. This is the reality that God wants, which means that before the fall was also a time where things were structured the way God wanted. So I do think that that implies that uh, lions were not eating lambs before the fall either. Uh, but that's you know taking the creation story in a very uh, historically literal way that, that, you know, you got to be careful when you do stuff like that as well. But regarding entropy, I mean, yeah, it's true that there's entropy, but even though there's entropy, it's not, um, absolute, uh, you, cause within entropy where things are pro- progressively breaking down, energy is going from useful energy to useful, useless yeah. energy yeah. in a progressive way. Even in the context of that, we have life that grows and not just life, but like things that develop into more cohesive, uh, competent kind of creatures. And so even in this universe of entropy, you have a a baby that gets stronger, that gets uh, smarter, that gets more stable, that can walk, that can do more things, that can learn things, that has more control over their environment uh, before until they die. And so I don't know what the opposite of entropy is, but that's what that is in the context of entropy. And then um, even when you look at a single body, I look at the body and I say, man, this thing is not designed for entropy. This is designed to live forever. I mean, we are just like so close. I mean, if you think about like, um, you know, when when you're a baby and you grow up and you have baby teeth uh, and then you lose your baby teeth and then somewhere you pop, you start to get new teeth. And new teeth come up and they're your adult teeth. It's like, well, we have the system in place. Why not just have new teeth every five or six years? We would never have to see the dentist, you know? We have the systems to replace our teeth in place. It just seems like that's something that we could we could have new teeth forever. And um, and our skin is the same way, you know? We, every, I think, 36 hours, you have a new layer of skin or, or something like that. And all of our organs reproduce. And, and, and it's a real mystery in biology about why we even age because our bodies constantly replace themselves and and there's different theories on on why we age and it's it's not um there's no certainty uh, about it something about toxins and things like that but uh and so i look at entropy and i say yeah entropy but also look at the human body and look at how close we are to to being eternal and uh uh, so i don't know man i wrestle with that because i i wonder (laughs) i wonder what 
I, it's hard to conceive of, and that doesn't mean it's not possible, you know, it's hard to conceive of a world in which, um, do we no, no longer reproduce then, you know, because we get to a certain point in which if people are inherently immortal, so that, that would be one point. I actually don't see the, I don't see Adam and Eve, even in the intentions of the author, not doing a flat reading you know, um, the flat reading of that, that story. Uh, I don't see them as inherently immortal. And then suddenly because they fall, they are now going to physically die. The promise, uh, the, the, the prescription was, if you do this, you know, you do this and act this way in the garden. But if you don't on that day, you will surely die. And then they don't die. So the deaths clearly to me has to be a different level of death than the physical breaking down of their body. Um, yeah. And, you know, and if that isn't the case, is there no reproduction? Because if everybody's reproducing and they're living forever, where do we go? I mean, there's not enough. uh, So I almost see, to me, the point I'm at is I I see the aging of my body in this present age as part of the right ordering of God. And in some ways, we're actually slowly participating in Christ's suffering, that we, we learn how to give of ourselves for someone else. We learn that yeah. we can't consume forever, that we actually right. are going to be consumed. Like, I'm going to get buried down in that dust and some earthworms are going to eat me up, you know? And that's, yeah. and that's actually good. Uh, and so even that disposition to me, these have really—this isn't just abstract concepts, because to me, it, it ties to how we live our life. Like, you're living your life a particular way, at least you're trying to, Dan, because of this— the story that you believe and you go, Hey, I see this as a problem. I see, um, carnivorous action in the world as not part of the way we're going to be. And so I'm going to try to live into that right now. Mm -hmm. Um, where I, as I go, I, well, I don't know if I have the commitment to pull that off even as um, poorly as you think you're pulling it off. (laughs) Uh, even if I did have that commitment, but I don't, I go, I think I, to me, I, I always see that as a participation now, there could be incidences where I consume more than what I need, and that's gluttony, and that's a sin. Um, maybe there's a way, even in the animal world, in which predation, there's a more just way for that predation to have happened. Um, yeah. I think, I don't hunt. I'm, I'm not a hunter. and it's I don't know if it's necessarily for moral reasons or not. But, you know, hunters don't, or they shouldn't, they don't go out and uh, shoot Bambi. Right, you're supposed to wait until you're 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 killing something that's already had the opportunity to produce produce offspring, and mm-hmm. part of the the reason why you know some hunters go, hey, I'm ethically all right with this is these animals are going to potentially die. They will all die at some point. Old age is going to be a worse death. They're going to be torn apart as soon. <laughs> you know, it's yeah. it's it's red in tooth and claw out there. Right, and so um, you know, I'm just participating in. The, no, I, I think the natural that's cycle I, of life. And so, yeah, but I'm that's, pro hunting, by the way. I'm yeah, absolutely pro hunting. Yes, but that's, um, to me, even that can have like, a, that has a theological component to it. If you see this sort of cycle of life as part of God's good ordering versus seeing it as something that Satan has influenced, don't you feel that way? Say that last part again. Yeah, so like if you see something even like, the, the the life cycle and the way it's mm-hmm. currently structured. Um, herbivores eat plants. You know, the plants take the sunlight. 
Herbivores eat the plants, the carnivores eat the herbivores, some carnivores eat other carnivores and herbivores. Then we all die. Decomposers break our body down, you know, and then we enrich the soil that grows the plants again. Yeah. To me, I look at that cycle and I go, I have to believe, and there's to me some theological reasons now where I have to believe that that's actually part of good God's good ordering. Um, well, you're a carnivore, though. You're at the top of the cycle. <laughs> right. That's a good point. It's easier point. for you to say that. <laughs> say so. more about that. I think that's a good <laughs> objection. Well, I mean, yeah. I mean, it, it, if you're the carnivore and you're at the top of the cycle and you're the one who is the one who eats the final product, it's easier to say, this is mm. a great cycle. This is, I don't see anything wrong with this. And um, But if you're the, you know, the bird that gets eaten by the python and slowly digests while you're still alive in the python's belly and uh, suffers until the last moment. I mean, that's not, I don't think that that's godly. I think that that's, that's evil. And the reason why I'm pro hunting is that if you are going to eat meat, uh, at least the animal had a chance to live in God's creation. We go back to creation again, where you can experience how God created the world. And mm. uh, instead of being in a factory farm where you can't even move, um, I would I would much rather people eat stuff that they, that they hunted if you're going to eat meat. Right, right. Um, so I, I I do think that there's there's something. Um, I don't think that that we were meant to kill other things to eat. I, I think that fruit and vegetables. I don't think that we're actually killing a thing. Uh, I think that we, you know, I think that that's a very different type of thing. Uh, and I don't think it's a coincidence that they, what they ate, they were, they were allowed to eat anything from any of the trees except for the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And there was, I think that that language is intentional. And I think that it's intentional that, that the prophet said that, you know, in God's kingdom, the lion will lay down with the lamb because there is going to be this fundamental structure and there's something wrong with the structure now. I think that there's something to that personally. Um, so that, so, that's my yeah, take on it. All right. So the hard question then becomes, Dan, as we start to like interpret suffering inducing events in the world and we look at those to me i see like there's two ditches and i've i'm gonna i want to explain these two ditches and then explain maybe some of my concerns with why i think maybe the open view has now in my mind gotten too close to one ditch so on one ditch you have a view that sees everything as being right ordered that it all comes from god um, i've called this like a monistic theodicy you know, and on that side of the spectrum, you might have uh, Calvin to me is inched a little bit too close to that. You had the Jansenists, um, you have the deists, you know, it, in a deistic view, like God's made the machine, the machine's running exactly as it's supposed to. Yeah. So the danger on that is that you see everything is right ordered. And you bring up a really good point with why I, as a carnivore, think it's probably right ordered. And, and it illustrates a deeper point. If you think that everything's right ordered, it might be because you're on top of the food chain. Right, right. Right? And so yeah. there's a real existential problem. If you have that view, you may continue to allow injustices to happen in the world and not work to change them because you might go, hey, it's just part of the right ordering. So there's the danger on that side. That's why I'm not, you know, a five-point Calvinist. I, I appreciate a lot of things Calvin had to say, but I'm I'm not there. The other ditch that I feel like, and I, this is the thing I really want to work through with you about, Dan, the, mm -hmm. the other ditch is the ditch of the Gnostics, and we could call it hyper-dualism. The hyper-dualism of the Gnostics was that creation is so broken and so flawed that there had to be some sort of lesser demiurge that brought about the material world. Mm -hmm. 
And the concern I've started to have with my open theism, and I see this probably, again, more so with um, uh, with Tom's position, Thomas J. Ord's position, his God can't position. I have real questions as to, well, what, how messed up is creation? And at what point are we actually saying that Satan moves from being a um, spiritual moral agent who's evil and wicked in the creation arena where there's other spiritual moral agents and human moral agents till we get to the, how far is it till we get to the point where we're starting to essentially make Satan the demiurge? And what we have is a material world in which the, the world is so flawed and broken that I can't trust my senses. And some of the, me, the concerning applications of this are, especially in Christian communities that go, and I grew up in one in, in some sense that was really um, Gnostic. It saw the world so deeply entrenched in cosmic struggle that we saw things like scientists as being... If they didn't tell us what we believed about the Bible, it was part of some global conspiracy. Oh, um, I've seen it with the QAnon stuff uh, among Christian communities that are like, hey, of course all the world governments are telling us this stuff. It's because the world is evil. So one of the concerns I've had, Dan, I want to talk through this with you, is that I've been concerned that the open view, the implications of the open view, to me, they give such a high view of Satan's influence in the world that it borders on him being essentially a demiurge. Like you said something about, you almost feel like there's a necessity for there, in order for there to be love, there had to be a choice between good and evil. Like there had to be this, did this have to be the case, you know? Um, and if, the, if there's that level of influence where I go, man, when I eat, when I went out for dinner, I talked to this, my podcast recently, uh, had dinner with my wife for our birthday and I sat down and had a really nice rare steak that I looked around in that moment. It was wonderful. We were having such a great moment. But then I started thinking about all the possible ways that suffering was happening all around me. It, not just the animal that gave its life the waiter and his aching feet as he's walking around, uh, the cook in the back who's adjusting their mask for the 100th time, sweating back there. And I go, oh, can I really see this moment as a good moment? So that's to me how this stuff connects to people's real life views on how they're going to engage with the world around them. So what, what do you think about my concerns that like the warfare view, the open view, assigns so much power and ability to Satan to even affect creation at the level of going, hey, Satan, it's the influence of Satan that causes the lion to want to eat the lamb. Um, what, what's your response to that, Dan? Help me yeah, think through I, it. I, well, I, I, I'd say a few things. Um, the uh, the lion want, wanting to eat the lamb, um, it might just be the result of... Um, like I said, it doesn't necessarily have to be Satan. It could just be that in order for there to be a love relationship, there has to be an alternative to God and Adam and Eve chose the alternative. And so part of that is, okay, now you need to live in a not God structure. And that by, by its nature is going to be profoundly different than a for God structure. And, uh, and so that, that could just be that. Um, 
and I don't know exactly, there's probably some other theological questions that would have to be asked there. Uh, but in terms of like, um, you know, this demi-urge, um, I don't really, there's sort of a slippery slope there. Like how much power for Satan is too much power? Yeah, that's, uh, a, that's you know, the question I have. Because I yeah, do want to assign it, because I do believe, I mean, Jesus says, in especially in John's gospel, he's about to go to the cross, John 12, I believe. And he goes, now he's talking about his death on the cross. And he says, now is the time for judgment. The prince of this world will be driven out. Like he sees right. his own cross as a judgment on Satan. And the New Testament authors take Satan very seriously. So yeah. uh, there is that temptation to go totally on the, the monistic theodicy side and be like, well... Satan's either not really a thing or he's just kind of like, like Luther kind of saw him as on God's leash. And on the other side, he's like a demiurge. And I'm trying to figure out, is there a way that we can stay away from the extremes? And I have concerns about maybe the open view leaning more towards that. So that is the question. I I guess I don't feel the, the, the risk of giving Satan too much power because, uh, you know, he he is called the God of this age. And um, when he, in, when uh, he confronts Jesus in the desert, he says that he's been given all authority and and uh, and that he can hand that over to Jesus if he so pleases. And and so the Bible seems to embrace that this guy is in charge here. He has more authority even than Jesus because he's the one who can give Jesus this authority. And so somehow, uh, or at least at that you know, time, right before at the that cross, time, at yeah, that moment. Yeah. The other thing, though, is in the context of creation. And and it's not like creation is necessarily all that there is. I mean, creation might just be a half of a percentage of all that there is. There might be, you know, who knows what, you know, where was God before creation? I mean, wh- wh- you know, uh, wh- where is creation? Where is the universe? Where is where is all this located? And we don't know anything. And and so whatever whatever power Satan has here. And again, I go back to my confession that I I don't necessarily like believing in Satan. So all of this (laughs) stuff, even as I'm saying it, sounds fantastical and uh, la-la land. But given that I do believe it, uh, you know, who who cares if Satan is in charge of this little sliver of reality, which is creation? Uh, If God is promising us that even though he's in control of it, he is going to be driven out and that God is promising us eternal fellowship uh, with the triune God, you know, God's still in charge of everything. Uh, it's just that Satan, for some reason, because of the fall, because of uh, some the- whatever, however your theodicy explains it, is in charge of this uh, contingent creation. Um, okay, it's but what not gives like, you, what gives you it's confidence? not like dualism, which says that there are two gods, is what I'm saying. Well, yeah, and that's probably my concern, is that at some point, there's a level of significance and power given to Satan in our theologies that I don't know, there's got to be some threshold where we're talking like, well, we're, we're essentially in the demiurge territory. And so when I start thinking about, well, boy, was our universe itself, like that moment from the Big Bang, and there's entropy at work, and stars are, yeah. uh, you know, we, we, don't, we don't exist without the explosion of stars. I mean, they're not, maybe there is some way, I'm not a panpsychist per se, they're, maybe they're not conscious, so that's not a big deal, but it's still there's destruction happening, as you're saying, and, and life emerging out of the destruction. Mm-hmm. If we get to the level in which I go, well, Satan has messed that thing up, I'm going, well, golly, what's the difference between that and the Gnostic Demiurge? Because we're saying the material world that we have, and yet if I go too far in the other direction, it's like, well, everything's good and right-ordered, even right. Hitler, even, you know, 
cancer. And we, so we, we lose our motivation to resist those things. Right. I'm cur- yeah. curious though, Dan, what, what would lead you to believe though, if, and this is the thing I've wrestled with and it gets back to the, like Laplace's demon um, thought experiment. If God can't predict, let's just say like I grant, I go with that open view ontological structure. Like I just, I'm, I say, I, I'm fine with that. God created reality with contingent possibilities, right? And those things don't become actualities until free moral agents choose them. The thing that I brushed up against that ultimately makes me go, I just don't think I can hold to this anymore, was the sense in which I, how can I have certainty that the outcome will end up the way that God wants it to if Satan's messed it up this badly so far and God can't even predict with enough certainty what the next move will be? How can I have certainty that this is going to end the way God wants it to? What do you think about that? Yeah. Well, how does that what is how does that relate to uh, Laplace's demon? Oh, okay, so the way it relates, and I'll, I'll explain the thought experiment for those who aren't familiar with it. I know you're familiar with it, but yeah. uh, Pierre Laplace uh, proposed this thought experiment in which, if you imagine that there was some intelligence that had access to the position of everything in the universe um, at any given moment, if they had enough computational power, if they knew the position of every single atom, every single Thing, however far we want to break that thing down, maybe to string level, uh, string theory level, whatever that might be, the quark level, that if an intelligent, an all-intelligent being had access to all those positions and had essentially unlimited computational power, that they'd be able to, from that singular moment, be able to trace back where all of the previous steps, the previous causes that have led to this effect come from, and they would be able to predict from that very moment on how everything else will go if, again, they had access to everything mm-hmm. in, the, in the universe, they knew the positions of all of them, and they had enough computational power to, to even just sort through, the, like, we could say he wasn't using this language, but like the algorithmic possibilities. So one practical example is like now they have technology when I'm watching a basketball game that as a guy's dribbling the ball up the court, they can give the statistical percentage of where he's at on the court, how closely he's being guarded, and the statistical likelihood that he's going to make that shot. I have to believe that God, in his infinite intelligence and being transcendent, holding all things together in him, by him, and through him in this very moment— has access to that. If I truly believe he's infinitely intelligent, like the open theist told me he is, how does he not know definitively? Like, yeah. you know, LeBron James dribbles down the court. Is this going in or not? Is, does God have doubts about that? I have a hard time believing that. If I do, then I feel like there's either a computational problem, like God just doesn't have the processing power, or that God doesn't have access to everything in creation. And this is the the thing I brushed up against, which was like, well, if he can't even predict with a high degree of certainty, with perfect certainty, the outcomes, how am I supposed to have any assurance that this is ever going to pan out? Does that make yeah. sense? Yeah, it does. Um, here, the problem with, uh, I like saying Laplace for some reason. Oh, go for La it. Yeah. I might be saying it wrong. Which is not the right... 
No, no, you're doing it right. Okay. I'm doing it wrong. I also say face buca when I say Facebook. <laughs> I don't know why. I just I like Are you saying Italian. That. No, but it's no. just funny to me. I don't know. But uh, so Laplace, uh, the problem with that that dilemma is that he assumes the answer in the question, and and it's he's basically saying, how do you account for free will in a deterministic universe? Because he's saying that. If reality is such that uh, if I knew everything, I could predict everything, how do you account for free will? Well, you can't, because if reality is that way, then there is no free will. And so it's, it's a, in my mind, it's a, it's a false dilemma. What the open theists are saying is that reality is not that way. If you could know all of the variables, there's still uh, indeterminacy within the structure. And, um, and, and so that, that's what I would say is that, uh, you know, even if God knew all of the variables now, you know, when it comes to like a basketball shot, uh, some of those, you know, some of that data, I think is a lot easier to ascertain and, and God could probably necessitate, um, you know, like he could determine exactly what was going to happen. What a person will do in a moral situation, I think is a lot more, uh, indeterminate. And, and, um, as soon as you bring, in fact, what I would even argue is that, uh, indeterminacy, is the most robust in uh, humans who have self-consciousness. In, 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 and that's, that, that's what I would say. Um, and so that's where I think that uh, indeterminacy is, is, is going to be a lot stronger. It's going to be harder to predict. Uh, but even within that context, I think that people are mostly uh, predictable. Um, but it only takes a little bit and a, a little bit of, of uh, autonomy and a little bit of personal say-so that's not necessitated by prior conditions can have a cumulative effect on the type of person you become. Um, given that, uh, so that's the first question is, is, you know, Laplace's demon, how do you explain free will And given Laplace's demon? And I would say that you can't because Laplace, even in how he sets up the question, says that things are determined. And so that's my answer to that. Well, how, how, if, if there is this uh, unpredictability, then how can God know what the ultimate outcome will be? And I think uh, that to me, how I make sense of that is, um, is to say that, that God can understand, like he can have some objectives be determined without every meticulous thing being uh, determined. And so the, the example that I give and, and, and this example is only meant to show one thing, that God can know he, he will have a people without knowing the individuals who will make that up. That's it. That's the only thing it's meant to, to, to show. And it's, it's my restaurant analogy. And, um, and, and I created this when I was a busboy at a restaurant, <laughs> shockingly enough. But if, if creation was a restaurant uh, and God created it, and he created this restaurant in such a way that there were two tables, one table had... 20 chairs around it. And the other table had 10 chairs around it. And, uh, as he's creating this, he is talking with Satan and Satan's like, no, one's going to sit at your table. Uh, people are going to want to sit at my table more than yours and, and people, you know, whatever. And so, and so God says, all right, fine. You can have this, this table here. It seats 10. Uh, and, uh, and my table seats 20. And God also knows that he's going to create 20 people. And so he's got these 20 people sitting outside and he's going to open the doors and, and he's just got these two empty tables in there. Now, at that point, God knows that he's going to have some people sitting at his table because there are only, 
10 that can sit at Satan's table. And so he's going to have at least 10. Who those people are, um, he doesn't know. He, he, he just knows that given the way he's created things, somebody is going to end up there. Uh, and so that's how I think that he can structure creation in such a way that people will, it's possible that everybody could sit at his table. But it's not possible that everybody could sit at Satan's table. And, and the point there isn't to, because the, the, the immediate question is, is, well, what about if there's already 10 people at Satan's table, what, the 11th person is not free. And that's a separate issue. And that's not what this is, is meant to show. Uh, this analogy is meant, just meant to show that it's possible to create a structure where you know one thing without knowing the, the, the specifics. And so I, I would say it's something like that that, that happens. Um, but you also have to account for uh, the person's free will. I guess I still have a question with that, though, Dan, because doesn't that, and all analogies and metaphors break down at some level when we start talking about this stuff. Yeah. But I, I guess the question I still wrestle with is it feels as if, though, that this removes the transcendence of God, that we have, and we have to hold to these two twin truths as Christians, that God is transcendent and also imminent. And I feel like that works if God is merely imminent in the creation himself. So he's, you know, let's say you got the restaurant, but just outside of the restaurant, you got the city block, you know, and so people are going to come into the restaurant walking down the sidewalks. And to me, this seems like God's on the sidewalk and, uh, you know, you got, he might have knowledge of the people that are coming into that place. But that makes God like another agent just in whatever this creation arena is. To me, though, if God transcends the creation arena, he has knowledge. He has to, by default, he has to be able to see everything in that creation if he's holding it together, if he's sustaining it. Um, if it isn't God, you know, to me, it's like, this is my problem with process theism. I feel like process theism says, essentially, it, it, there's very many variations of it, that creativity is actually God, and the thing we name God is like an agent in creativity's arena. Does that make sense? So that's yeah. that's the problem I have with process theism. And in some ways, I feel as if the the open view has maybe neglected the transcendent nature of God, that we have to have whatever, I'm not just talking about our universe, like you said, maybe there's a multiverse, maybe whatever it is, you have God who is necessary and anything that derives their being from God as, as a part of the contingent creation is borrowing, in a sense, their very being from the source of all being. So how God could not have knowledge of all that's in there, I have a, I have a problem with. Now, I know the open view is like, well, maybe some of what's in that contingent creation starts coming to be, isn't a thing to be known until free right. agents choose them. But that's where I brush back up against, well, how can God not see that I'm walking down the street to that restaurant? And how right. could he not see before that, that I got in my car to drive down to your restaurant, Dan? And yeah. like, how could he not see? Because it's not just that I have like this soul that overtakes my decisions. You know, that's... that's what do you certain... mean by that? What do you mean by the soul that overtakes your decisions? Well, that I'm purely, when it comes to moral decisions or the way I choose things, that there's like this unknown ingredient called the soul that acts upon me. That was certainly like one way people mm. tried to sift through and figure out how there could be free will. Whatever part of me that's conscious and immaterial 
always operates in my material self, right? Mm -hmm. So when I make a decision, I can actually, we can see this with fMRI imaging. We can see um, in New Zealand, uh, neuroscientists did this interesting experiment maybe two years ago where they presented people with like two images in the fMRI machine and asked them to make a choice as to which image. And I believe it was up to six to 12 seconds before they actually selected the image. They could see the blood moving in particular parts of their brain. Right. And so when I start thinking about, well, when does God actually know a thing? And we're like, well, it's only when free agents choose it. To me, I'm going, all right, well, when is that choice? Is it when the blood starts moving? Is it somehow before then when people are setting up the, you know, here's your choice? I just, mm -hmm. I just, I guess for me, the thing I've landed on, like, I feel more comfortable to me with like C.S. Lewis's position that it's mystery as to how... God can know, and yet I'm still free. And I guess the place I've landed is being more comfortable with that mystery. Mm. And because I just can't, I can't understand how God couldn't be able to compute what yeah. would be coming well, next. Well, let me ask you this. I mean, like, like the, the assumption that I'm hearing there yeah. is that this, that, Everything that exists that God looks at must determine something else. And it's impossible for there to be data that is indeterminate. Yeah. Uh, that is not that. And, and so, and that's an easy thing to believe because no matter what happens, you can always create a narrative that shows a causal chain up to that thing. But the problem with that, though, is that if a person would have chosen otherwise, you could create an equally compelling causal chain that leads up to that choice. And so, uh, and so I think in order for there to be, uh, free will, uh, there has to be a reality has to be such that we are under, underdetermined in some way that, that there might be three options and none of them, uh, compel a choice. And so we have to bring some other energy to that, uh, uh, to that decision. And I don't think that, that you can, uh, I don't think that you can talk about free will without talking about, um, something that's beyond our physical matter. Um, uh, and and so I do think that whether you call it a soul or whatever yeah, that yeah. self-consciousness thing is, yeah. I think does come into play. And this is why when you read Daniel Dennett, when you read Sam Harris, when they're talking about free will, they're also talking about self-consciousness and they always go after self-consciousness yeah. because you have to. And, yeah. and the problem with that is that self-consciousness, this idea that we have something that transcends the physical self, um, we each have perpetual evidence of that nonstop perpetual evidence of that thing. And it's not reducible to physical, uh, to a physical brain. And so yeah, we have I'm tracking this, with this, you on that. Yeah. 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 And so, and so what I would say is that, uh, I, I do rely on something that transcends the physical self in order to make sense of this. Uh, but I do that without shame because I don't think that, I don't think that the arguments against, um, self-consciousness being something that transcends physical matter, I, I, I haven't seen a good argument against it yet. Yeah. Um, I'm tracking. So, uh, I'm tracking with you on that, but to me, the still the question would be: it still doesn't transcend God's creation. So even let me this, explain it this way. Yeah, go for let, it. Let me try one more thing. Yeah. Let's say you have two choices. Okay, I have two choices right here. I've got a glass of water, and I've got this uh, glass of lemon honeygrass sparkling water. Yeah. Okay. And uh, and I have a choice there, and maybe uh, God can see how compelling each of those choices are, and I need to have at least seventy percent. Uh, compelling in order to compulse a behavior. And uh, so the 
the lemongrass honey water is at about a 55 and the glass of regular water is at about a 30. Now, neither one of them have passed that threshold of 70% in order to compulse a behavior. So where does the rest of the energy come from? Where does the rest of the compulsion come from? Uh, and this is where I, I say that we each bring a certain amount of compulsion with us and that we can leverage. Now, maybe that amount in this situation is 40, which means that I could actuate either one of those because 40 would be enough to push that that amount of compulsion past the 70 percent line um and 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 so i bring a certain amount of say so to that choice and so i would say that there's a lot of choices that are underdetermined and that it requires our own uh compulsion our own amount of say so to push any of those options across the line and so when god sees all the data he literally sees all the data he sees that the glass of water has a, a 30% compulsion the the honey lemon honey grass has a 55 and dan has a 40 and so he could uh and this is what god knows perfectly he knows all of the data perfectly and still the data doesn't determine which of those two things i'm going to choose now if the glass of water was only a 10, well then, even though I think I'm making a free choice, God would know that I'm not because I don't have enough compulsion to bring this past the the 70% tipping point. And so uh, he knows that I'm going to choose the lemongrass honey water. Um, And so that's how I would say that, yeah, God knows everything, but the data a lot of times is undeterminate. It it could go in multiple directions. And 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 that's still God knowing with, with with perfection, everything that there is to know. I guess I'm still wrestling with where the indeterminate factor comes from, from a God's eye perspective versus our own. Even as we like improve our ability to do things with AI, like Mm -hmm. to me, that sounds actually really similar to what I was talking about with the basketball statistics, the advanced metrics that they're able to do with live in-game stuff where a guy's got the ball at a specific spot on the court. We got this statistical chance. To me, I just I wrestle with well, what would what would be the indeterminate variability in that equation that would be like, and when does that become knowable to mm-hmm. God? You know, and I suppose uh, the thing that I've brushed up against, and I, I don't think we're going to settle it right now. I, I think right. this is actually really I appreciate the back and forth on it, Dan. It's given me a lot of stuff to think about too. Um, I guess the thing I keep brushing up against is I I just. I have more of a problem with either I have to, it feels like I have to either eliminate God's transcendence or I have to make God cognitively limited. And then I don't really feel good even about, you know, the, the classic, the chess master analogy in open theism. Cause I go, well, you know, could he, it, how compu, how cognitively limited is this God that he couldn't do things that, you know, I think in a hundred years from now, if we're still, you know, we haven't destroyed, well, we're not going to destroy it. God's going to redeem the planet. But, you know, in a hundred years from now, if there isn't some sort of mass technology extinction level event, that we're going to have AI that's going to be able to nail in a basketball game, like the outcomes before they happen, right? Yeah. I don't think so, but no, (laughs) I've I've studied some AI stuff and I I don't think we'll ever get to that point. Let me ask you this though. Yeah, go for it. what, see, you think that it it violates God's transcendence if He is not able to um, if He is not able to know all of this stuff. 
See, I think it violates God's transcendence if he is not able to create autonomous beings who can have their own say-so. Hmm. Because if the, if he cannot create autonomous beings that have their own say-so, then he's not transcending anything. He's really literally just everything. He is creation. Yeah. And so in order for him to transcend something, there has to be a genuine other. And so that's why I think that transcendence requires that there is this actual say so and this indeterminacy otherwise he's not transcending anything yeah that's a good that's a good pushback dan and that's the thing i'm concerned about is in that other ditch yeah the other ditch of the the monistic theodicy where um everything is rightly ordered um and everything is going according to plan and the thing i'm trying to navigate is there is there a space between those two because I still, I, I'm still brushing up against. Well, the, to me, the transcendent part is that there is nothing that exists that exists beyond the bounds of God's being. Like it's all borrowing from God's being. God, even I, I don't know how we even get a workaround to even the most heinous instances of evil that are happening right now on this planet. That they are still ontologically grounded in the God that holds all things together. And so even that to me is a sense in which that there is something rather than nothing comes from the permission of God. And so if, if he knows all of those positions, if he is infinitely wise, if he's beyond the, the most, if we go 10,000 years from now, that his, his, his wisdom, his intelligence is going to be beyond what 10,000 years worth more of AI development can do, which I have to believe is the case. Um, then to me, I go, all right, that's, I feel like that's too far of a ditch. There's a, there's a hyper warfare view. And then there's this God does everything. I guess to me, the place I've landed is like, I think somewhere in between there, it's what I've called, um, you know, moderate cosmic um, dualism in the arena that God made. And I don't know how this works, but I appreciate the pushback. It's good. This is the thing I want to work through and, and workshop together with other really smart people like yourself, Dan, is like, I feel like what the early church held to was that there really was cosmic, on the cosmic level, in the arena of creation, there were real forces, agentic wills that are moving towards God and moving away from God. And I still, I I think, you know, that, that part of like origin, Gregory of Nyssa, and even early Augustine's theology is spot on. I know they're borrowing a bit from Platonism, but to me, evil is moving away from the goodness of God towards non-existence and non-being. So I think in the arena, I have to leave room for that to really be real. But I'm just concerned about these two ditches that I perceive to be ditches on the other side. So a pushback about, well, like you give me is good because I don't want to land in that other ditch because I think that other ditch makes a box, a philosophy box for the scriptures that eliminates things like human moral responsibility and the goodness of God. And I don't want that, but I'm also concerned about the other side. So Mm -hmm. I, I think this back and forth, I, I'm, I'm finding it helpful. So just thank you for pushing back. Oh yeah. This is this. I love this, man. I wish I could do this every day, Uh, but, but I I would say the, uh, I, I hear your pushback strongly. Like the, the concerns you have about the ditch that you've placed open theism in, those are the concerns I have for process theism. 
Yeah. Uh, and, and I yeah. tend to think that open theism tends to be pretty much different because process theism basically says that God and creation are co-eternal and that God did not create creation ex nihilo, but they they need each other in this kind of symbiotic relationship. And, and that, I think, has all of the lack of transcendence fears that you uh, talk about. Open theism rejects that and says, no, open theism just says that there is some openness, that God sees everything that there is to know, and that agents still have genuine otherness and so that they can do things that um that that are their own say so god knew them as possibilities but he doesn't yet necessarily know them as actualities um and so i i i would say that i would i would encourage you to think of uh process theism as a ditch a little further away from oh, the totally, at the very totally. at the very least <laughs> oh yeah yeah I, on that spectrum i put process in the gnostic yeah. Camp because to me then then God is essentially like the demiurge that creativity yeah. and creativity is um, the thing beyond ontologically beyond God and provides the limitations for God to work with. So certainly I, I go that far. The question for me has been reflecting on the open view is like uh, so like on the other side you have the deists. To me I feel like Calvin at times gets too close to the deists. Yeah. Um, process theism and the early Gnostic heresy to me is on that other ditch. And I also get why it's appealing. Like I get why Tom's position is appealing to oh, people yeah. on an existential totally. level. Cause you, if you walk away and go, Hey, there is some sense of comfort in hearing, well, God couldn't have done anything and he's on your side and he's for your good still, but he just couldn't. Yeah. I get why that can be more appealing to people. And I'm not, I'm not calling, um, yeah. Tom and Tom's or, such a great salesman and he's such a great guy and yeah, he's got yeah, so much yeah. charm and, and he's, I, I love Tom. So, yeah, so and I'm he's not, a good writer and he's a yes, good Yes, definitely. And so, so I'm not, I'm not, I'm not, Tom, if you're listening, I'm not calling you a heretic. My, con- <laughs> <laughs> my concern though has been that on that ditch, there is, these two ditches are both to me containers that I can't fit all of the biblical revelation in. And so this has been really helpful, Dan. I know we've gone for quite a bit, and we haven't landed in a place where um, I think we have uh, reconciled all of these differences, and that's just fine. I think talking through it for me has been helpful. I know for some of the listeners, it's been helpful as well. Do you have any closing thoughts that, you know, maybe people that are wrestling with this you want to throw out? Yeah, just a couple questions. Um, Yeah. could just to think about could god create uh, a person that has genuine say so um that has genuine otherness uh is it possible to create another being that has their own autonomy away from god um and if you say yes then i think you have to embrace this idea that that means that they're going to do things that god might not uh uh, predict the actuality of uh, with 100% certainty. Um, and then the other thing I would say is if you say no, that God, that God has to know everything about the future, well then what does that say about God's ability to create autonomy? Um, and so in my mind, uh, it's the greater God who uh, is able to create an autonomous being to have uh, this genuine relationship with. And that is, um, and I think Tom and Greg would agree with this, that is a greater God. And that means that uh, in being this greater God, uh, he is creating a reality in which he knows some things as possibilities and he knows some things as actualities. And he knows them all perfectly as such. 
but that also means that things might not go the way that God wants them to go. And that's exactly what most of the Old Testament is about, is about, look at this creation. This is not the way I wanted it to go. I regret making humanity. I thought Israel was going to be faithful, but they weren't. And over and over and over again, we see this God lamenting about this reality that is not the way that he wanted it to go. And that only really makes sense uh, in in a world where God actually creates this autonomy and uh, creates this reality in which he knows some things as as actualities hmm. and some things as possibilities. Hmm. Those are my closing arguments. Yeah, that's good pushback. I guess the point I still come back to is there's still then questions as like, to me, I'm still wrestling with, and maybe I'd even invite you, Dan, because I know um, you are thankfully a supporter on Patreon. When we post the discussion forum for this episode, uh, and I'll send you a link to that when we're done, <clears throat> and we air this next week, that maybe you could even chime in if there are people that have specific questions for you. I don't want to put anything on your plate or an expectation, but yeah. maybe that'd be something that would be of interest to you just to, as people have questions about this. I guess I still come back to the point where I'm like, when God brought something out of nothing, um, it's like, was he shocked about this? <laughs> was he like surprised? And then I have I a question. Then I have a question about. I have a question about. I still I still have a question about the goodness of that God. Did he have to evaluate? Like, well, it could have been this way if I do this. Um, to me, that doesn't give me as much certainty about my future and how that will. Or I'm not just wow. saying exclusive my, my own future. That's really individualistic. No, the future no. of the creation story and where God um, is taking the story. So yeah. I don't know. That's, that's where I'm at. You've given me some good pushback here too, Dan. This has been a blast. Um, totally. You can tell people where maybe they can pick up your Confident Humility book, which I don't think has anything to do with what we talked about <laughs> No. No, you know what? I'm. I really appreciate this discussion because I do would like to do some more writing on this, and I'm just kind of starting to get back into it. And I'm very rusty on all of this stuff, by the mm. way. So this is good to kind of kick this around again. But um, my book, uh, Confident Humility, um, it's available on Amazon. I think I don't really know where else, but uh, uh, I, I yeah, you can find me on Twitter at, at that Dan Kent, and I usually just tweet dumb jokes on there. But <laughs> and uh, poetry. Sometimes I'll tweet you and poetry. Yeah, yeah. yeah so yeah, I love that poetry. Well, and maybe I can twist Dan's arm again to at least chime in on a, a couple of uh, responses to this week's forum posts yeah. and um, not, you know, that, that'd be interesting. Yeah, support, support Paul on Patreon oh, man, and, and I would be, I would be happy to jump on there and uh, I love the work that you're doing here and uh, it's good to kick this around with you. Yeah, and, definitely. Uh, I, I was hoping that by the end of this, you would be in tears, embracing <laughs> <repented> open theism, <laughs> embracing the open theism, yes. yes. And I could go back to Greg and say, I did what you couldn't do, Greg. I know. I'm thinking about putting my Clark Pinnock shrine back up in the background here, and you've, you've given hey, me a lot to think about. Yeah. Someday I'll have to tell you about the story of the time when I wandered into a room and sat at a table with Greg Boyd, Clark Pinnock, John Sanders, and Paul Eddy as they discussed uh, Greg's defense to the um, Evangelical Society's uh, oh my attacks goodness. against him. So That's I, a somehow, good cliffhanger. I, yeah, somehow I was at this table with them as they were doing this. So, oh man. Okay, uh, next so time you're on. Next time you're on, yeah. you got to tell us that story. Awesome. Thanks, right, Dan. Man. Well, I'm sure that many of you have questions, objections, different ways of seeing it from maybe even both Dan and I. Maybe there's some process theists out there that just think we're both totally missing it and it should be the process view. I'd love to hear from all of you whether you had points of agreement, disagreement, follow-up questions. 
The best place to voice those right away is to do it in our discussion forum for this episode on Patreon. So you can get involved over there. You'll find a link in the description. It's also the best place that you can support this podcast and connect with other people that are listening and having dialogue about these sorts of questions and ideas in the intersection of theology and philosophy, theology and science, theology and the arts and culture. So many different places where we're exploring how theology touches it all. On that Patreon page, you'll find out about different tiers of rewards for differing levels of support. You can do something like, hey, sign up with me for a monthly one-on-one conversation where we can process these things, just, just the two of us. You can also sign up to be part of the monthly Patreon Zoom hangout groups where we Just like we did, uh, as I talked about in the video just last week, when we recorded today's conversation, it was just the night before, we had a great discussion forum together. We were talking about some of these things, problem of evil. We talked about uh, different things that each person in the group were reading and finding helpful or things they were listening to. It was just a uh, great opportunity to connect to learn from each other. So if that's something that's interesting to you uh, and you'd see benefit to connecting with other people, then I really encourage you to get involved and sign up over at the Deep Talks Patreon page. You can also connect with me on Twitter and on Instagram. I do enjoy getting messages from people over there. Obviously, Patreon is the best place to do that, but I try my best on Twitter and Instagram to respond to people as well. Then finally, if I could make one more request of you, if you're finding this podcast helpful, would you subscribe on Apple Podcasts, even if that's not where you normally listen to this and leave a review and rating for this podcast over there? That improves the algorithmic chances that someone else might stumble upon this as well and take a shot on it. And if you're finding it helpful, there's a good chance someone else out there might find it helpful. And last, but certainly not least, I want to give an extra special thanks to those people supporting in the Theology 201 group or higher. People like Clint, Jesse, Anders, BJ, Carolyn, Eli, Hannah, Dr. Jim, John Michael, Johnny, Josie, JT, Julie, Justin, Lola, Luke, Michael Hawk, Michael Hernstein, Michael Peterson, Mike Thomas, Paul Spencer, Paul Reese, Peter, Rob, Sam and Nicole, Sam P, Sarah R, Sean C, Stephen M, Taylor S, and Tim K. Thank you all for your generous support. I'm so appreciative of each of you. Can't do it without you. And I hope to talk to a bunch of you again in next month's Patreon Zoom group discussion and hangout in the month of April. So until next time, Make sure you reach out with your questions, your disagreements, your own observations, and we'll talk again soon.